And so let's go to Revelation chapter 11 and think about the good things that he has done, that he is doing, and that he is going to do. Revelation 11. And before we jump in there, I just thought maybe it'd be good if we reviewed a little bit since last Sunday was Covenant Day. And so it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Revelation together. I just thought maybe we could kind of knock the cobwebs out a little bit. So uh, I'm also sort of thinking through, I don't know if this will be possible, but you guys know how I do the timeline of the entire Bible with the boys and girls, right? And it's been a long time since they've been able to come up on the stage and do that. I missed that. So that's why kids camp's been so sweet this weekend, by the way, because we've missed being with these kids. We've missed being able to play with them and love on them and uh, worship with them and have Bible study with them. So this has been a pure blessing this weekend to be there. But I'm thinking about trying to put together a, an overview of the book of Revelation that we just kind of walk through together, and that'll help us kind of learn the book together. So I'm, I got that rolling around in my head. We'll see if I can get that developed. We'll see what happens there. But we'll start with this. We know the first three chapters the book of Revelation are really focused around Jesus and his church. And you may remember that specifically in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, he's speaking directly to seven churches uh, there in that time period. But also what he says to them is, is for us today as well. And then in chapter 4, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. Chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation is this beautiful heavenly scene. If you're not familiar with Revelation 4 and 5, you ought to check that out. It's absolutely stunning. And John tells us that God is on his throne and that in his right hand, he's holding a scroll. And that scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now that scroll is the title deed to all of creation. Inside that scroll is the end of sin, the end of death, the end of sorrow, the end of sickness, the end of Satan. Inside that scroll is a new heaven and a new earth. Inside that scroll is the complete restoration of all things. And John says that there was no one found in heaven or on earth earth or under the earth who was worthy to break those seals and open the scroll. So John feels like now we're stuck. We're never going to get out of this mess because there's no one that's worthy to break those seals. And he begins to weep as you and I would too if we thought this is the best it's ever going to be, right? But then all of a sudden one of the elders says to John, stop crying. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And John turns thinking he's going to see a majestic lion. That's not what he sees, however. What he sees is a lamb, and this lamb looks like it's been slaughtered, but this lamb is not dead because it is the lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. John says this lamb is standing. And beautiful moment, one of the most beautiful moments in all of scripture, the son of God, the lamb of God, then comes to the throne of his father God, and he takes the scroll from his right hand because of his perfect life and his death on the cross and his victory over the grave he is now receiving rightfully the title deed to all of creation as he should because he is also creation's creator and then in chapter 6 Jesus begins to break each seal one by one and with the breaking of each seal the judgment and the wrath of God against sin is being poured out in this world and I told you that those seven seals as they're being broken, really it's an overview or a thumbnail sketch or think of a preview to a movie. It's kind of a preview to the entire period of tribulation, which is what Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 19 is all about. That may help you just understand the book of Revelation. 
4 through 19 is all about the seven years of tribulation. So in chapter 6, Jesus starts breaking those seals and he goes through until he gets to the seventh seal. And then there's a pause. There's a break in the action. And this is really sort of the pattern of revelation. God brings you into the story. And man, it is moving and it is kind of fast paced and it is dramatic. And then it's almost like God lets us come up for a breath of air. And we take a break in the action and he shows us some of the characters some of the personalities that are involved in the book, which is what he does in chapter 7. There's a break. After the six seals broken, there's a break in the action, and he tells us about the 144,000 Jewish missionaries that God raises up on planet Earth during these seven years. He also tells us about the multitude of people that nobody could count from every tongue and tribe and nation who give their lives to Christ during the tribulation, and they die because they do, and now they're gathered around God's throne in heaven. Then in chapter 8, we get back to the seven seals, and that seventh seal's broken in chapter 8. You may remember when the seventh seal is broken, there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then we come to the next set of judgments. The breaking of the seventh seal ushers in the next set of judgments called the seven trumpet judgments. And the trumpet judgments continue through chapter 9. Chapter 9 concludes with the blowing of the sixth trumpet. And with the blowing of the sixth trumpet, there is again another break, another escape hatch. It's the same pattern. Six seals are broken before we get to the seventh. <sighs> Breathe. Look at personalities. Six trumpets are blasted before the seventh trumpet is blasted. Breathe and look at some of the personalities. So we did that a couple weeks ago. We saw the first personality in chapter 10. We're going to be looking at personalities now uh, and kind of breaking in that action for the next several weeks. Chapter 10, two weeks ago, was the personality of the judgment of God. We saw that really personified in the form of this great angel in chapter 10 that had one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. We continue on today. Revelation chapter 11 is where we are. We're still in that break in the action, taking a look at some of the places and people and characters that are happening in this drama that's unfolding. And we're going to see two important things today in Revelation chapter 11. The first thing that I want you to see, number one, is one important place. One important place in Revelation chapter 11. This one place is the central place, the only place really that, that really is in view in Revelation chapter 11. I want to take you today to that one place. John says, Revelation 11, 1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. I kind of think of that sort of like a yardstick. And he said, I was told, rise and measure. And he's told specifically to measure three things. Watch this. Measure the temple of God. Measure the altar. And measure those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it's given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city. And you're going to see in a minute just how much they trample the holy city for 42 months. 42 months equals three and a half years. So first of all, John's given this measuring rod to measure the temple of God, the altar of God, and the worshipers who are worshiping there. Now listen, measuring something. I know you're going, what is this? have to do with anything. Well, measuring is a sign of ownership, right? If you've ever bought a house, before you could finalize the purchase of that house, you had to buy a survey. A survey had to be done. Something had to be measured to determine the ownership of that property. What's going to be yours, what's going to be underneath your ownership, has to be measured out. So God is sending a message here in Revelation chapter 11, not that he's purchasing something, not that he's buying something, but that he already owns something. 
that something is already under his possession. He is already the owner of something here. And because he owns this, he can do with it whatever he pleases. He can bless this if he wants to. It's his to bless. He can curse this if he wants to curse it. It's his to curse if he'd like. Whatever he pleases to do, he can do. And by the way, just so you know, this piece of property that he's measuring out here to this day is the most disputed piece of earthly property in the entire history of the world. It's what we know as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's a place that's considered by the three largest monotheistic religions of the world. Monotheistic meaning they only worship one God. That would be Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They all regard this as a holy place. And right now, that piece of property is under Muslim control. Christians aren't allowed to worship there. Jewish people aren't allowed to worship there. When you go to Israel with me late next May, we're going to go and you're going to see uh, all these Jewish worshipers. And they'll have their noses pressed into the crevices of the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. The reason is because that's as close as they can get. That's as close as they're allowed to get to that holy site. And they believe that the closer you are to a holy place, the holier it makes you. And they want to get to as close to that as they possibly can. But listen, in Revelation chapter 11, God's sending a message about this highly disputed piece of property. God is clearly saying, no, 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 everybody. This belongs to me. This is mine. He's measuring it out. He's claiming the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. Watch this. The worshipers who are worshiping there. He's, he's saying they're mine too. Look at the text. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now, who's, who would be worshiping in a Jewish temple at a Jewish altar in Jerusalem? Jewish people, Right? And so this is God saying, these Jewish people, they are my people. Now, God owns everything, but he is saying, these are a peculiar people. These are my covenant people. These are my chosen people. Now, notice what's outside the circle of what he's measuring. Verse 2 says, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Outside that circle of what God is measuring is all the non-Jewish people. All of the Gentiles. And I told you when we began this study in Revelation, when we jumped out of the book of Daniel, Daniel there makes it very clear, this prophecy that God gives Daniel through Michael the archangel, he makes it very clear that these seven years of tribulation are about Israel. God's purposes and his plan and his covenant with Israel. And that fact is highlighted here in Revelation chapter 11 as God is once again declaring his ownership of Jerusalem. And of this place of worship and over these Jewish worshipers. Now listen, you know this probably, but there's not been a temple in Jerusalem for Jews to worship in in nearly 2,000 years. There hasn't been one since 70 AD. But during the seven years of tribulation, apparently there's going to be a temple that's in Jerusalem during those days. And, and, and listen, it won't take long to put a temple up, right? Don't, don't think this is, some, this is going to be like a tenor. 20-year project, or like in biblical days, 50 years. It's not going to be like that. In, in fact, if they want to, they may just even throw up a tent 
That's how they all started worshiping anyway as God's people as they were wandering through the wilderness, right? And they worshiped inside a tabernacle. And there's a number of Jewish organizations that for many years, they've been preparing already for the day. They're training priests and they've already made all the, the furniture and the furnishings and all that that's supposed to be involved in this temple worship. So when they get the go-ahead to do this, it's not like they got to sit around and scratch their heads and figure this thing out. They're sitting on go. They're ready to make this thing happen. They're going to just quickly put up a functional structure at the minimum and they're set to go. And Revelation chapter 11 is telling us this place is so important to God. Now think about that. What are the chances that an ancient piece of literature like this one, the book of Revelation written nearly 2,000 years ago, and God says this little piece of property, half the size of the acreage of our new campus. Think about that. Out of the entire world, God says, that's mine. I'm going to mark it out. And I'm telling you, this is mine. What are the chances that 2,000 years later, that little piece of property is still today the most hotly contested geopolitical debate all over the world to this day? Can you not just recognize this book is like no other book? This book is perfect. It's inspired. It's without error. God's marking off this important place and he's claiming the temple the altar, and the worshipers there as his own possession. So that's the important place. So look, it seems to me so far what I'm taking away from Revelation, I know there's some other ways you can see it and interpret it, but it seems to me that the church is gone and the Antichrist comes in and he sets himself up to be this global world leader and he presents this bogus peace to the entire world and everybody buys into that. Maybe that's when he then allows the Jewish people to set up some kind of temple. We don't know if that gets erected during the tribulation or if it happens before the tribulation. We don't know to be sure. But I just imagine that once they're allowed to start worshiping there on that temple mount, their affections for Yahweh are getting stirred up. At the same time, they're hearing the witness of 144,000 Jewish missionaries that God has raised up, saying the Lamb of God has come. The Messiah has come, and He's available to you for you to be saved. At the same time, they're hearing about Gentiles all over the world, countless Gentiles, Revelation says, from every tongue and tribe and nation that are laying their lives down because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so maybe as this growing desire for the Messiah is, is revving up in the hearts of these Jewish people who are worshiping in the temple, the Antichrist, in a fit of jealous rage, rushes one day, I think in the halfway point of those seven years, rushes into that temple, and he says to the whole world, I am alone God, and you must worship me. Daniel calls this the abomination of desolations. He sets him up then in that moment to be worshipped. And I think that's a, probably a pretty good thumbnail sketch of what's happening along with all the judgments of God that are being poured out through the breaking of those seals and the blasting of those trumpets. And when the Antichrist breaks that treaty and he sets himself up to be worshipped in that temple, we're now at the halfway point of the seven years of tribulation. I know you're thinking, well, we're just in Revelation chapter 11. But re remember, now, Re Revelation is not a book that's all laid out chronologically. That's why it can be really confusing. If you think that it's a chronological account, it's not. It tells us what's going on, and then it tells us about some people. Then it kind of backs up, and it kind of spirals back around. So it's just important that we understand that. So when he does this halfway through the tribulation, 
desecrates the temple like that, that's when two important people come on the scene at the halfway mark of the tribulation. That's what I will show you next. We saw one important place, but I want you to see two people. Two important people here, Revelation 11. These two important people are known as the two witnesses. And as I said, I believe they show up on the scene three and a half years into the tribulation. And they're going to serve God for the final three and a half years of that period of time. Let me tell you about them. Look at verse 3. The Bible says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. The Jewish year, by the way, uh, is 360 days. So take 360 times three and a half years, and it comes exactly to 1,260 days. So they're going to have a ministry, these two witnesses, they're going to have a ministry on the earth that lasts for three and a half years. And they're clothed in sackcloth. And I want to show you some things about these two witnesses. First of all, notice their authority. Notice their authority. It comes from God. God said in verse 3, I will grant authority. In the midst of all this activity, the Antichrist, millions of demons that have been unleashed upon the earth, all these things that are going on, God places two men right in the middle of the world, right in the middle of Jerusalem. And God says, I will grant them my authority. They're just two ordinary men, but they have the authority of God in their life. I thought about when Moses was at a burning bush. It was just an ordinary bush, right? Until it was filled with the power, the glory, the authority of God. God does that. He changes ordinary and extraordinary. These are just two men, like all of us in this place, but God grants them his authority. Secondly, we saw their authority. Secondly, I want you to notice their activity. Verse 3 says they'll prophesy. The word prophesy here has the idea of preaching. These two men are going to preach. They're going to preach in Jerusalem for three and a half years. You know what they're going to preach? The same thing that your preacher preaches every single Sunday, Christ and him crucified. They're going to preach the gospel without fail. They're going to declare to the world for three and a half years that God is holy, man is not, and the only way to be reconciled to a holy God is sinners. is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that the only begotten Son of God came, wrapped himself in human flesh, lived a perfect and sinless life, died a substitutionary death in our place, and God raised him from the dead on the third day. And only when you turn from self and sin and repent and put your faith in Christ can you be saved? That's what they're going to be preaching. They're going to be warning against sin. They're going to be warning against Satan. They're going to be warning against the Antichrist. They're going to be warning against demons and hell. And they're going to be calling people to be saved for three and a half years. Now, third, I want you to see their identity. This is what you came to church for. You're like, I want to find out who are the two witnesses in Revelation. All right, well, I'm about to tell you. Verse four, here we go. These are the two olive trees. And the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. There you go. Now you know. That help you? You're like, no, it don't help me a whole lot at all. I, listen, I wish we had more time, but I would love to kind of dive deeper into verse 4 there. But I'll give you a homework assignment. That verse we just read, verse 4 there, go to Zechariah. Not right now, but homework tonight. Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, he uses the exact same phrase that we just read here in verse 4. You'll read there about two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, exactly as it is in Revelation chapter 11, verse 4. Here's the key. Watch this. Zechariah chapter 4 is about the restoration and the salvation of Israel. They've been in Babylonian captivity. In the Old Testament book of Zechariah, they've been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And Zechariah chapter 4 is all about God saving and restoring his covenant people, Israel. 
Revelation chapter 11, that's exactly what God's doing again. He's preparing to provide salvation and restoration to his covenant people, Israel. And by the way, in the book of Zechariah, God used two ordinary men in particular as his instruments to bring about the salvation and the restoration of his people from Babylonian captivity. Those two men are Zerubbabel and Joshua. Not the same Joshua from the Jericho battle. That's, this is hundreds and hundreds of years later after that. But those were the two ordinary men that God used in the Old Testament to bring about the salvation and the restoration of his people Israel. And when we get to the tribulation, God's doing it again. He raises up again two ordinary men that he's going to give his authority to, and they're going to be used of God to bring about salvation and restoration to his people Israel. Now, there really is no absolute certainty about who these two people are. Now, a lot of people, they like to speculate and sort of guess, and I have my guesses, and you probably have your guesses, but here's, let's do this. Let's just read the text here, and let's see if the description of these two witnesses reminds us of anybody. All right? Verse 5 says, If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, that is how he is doomed to be killed. Well, I read that. I, I thought about when Elijah was on top of Mount Carmel and, and there was a showdown with Ahab and the prophets of Baal and the fire fell down out of heaven. I thought about that. By the way, when you go to Israel with me next year, we're going to go to Mount Carmel. You're going to be where Elijah was on top of the mountain. You're going to look down in the valley of Megiddo, where the battle of Armageddon is going to happen. And then verse 6 says, And they have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Any Old Testament bus remember when a prophet had the power from God to shut up the heavens so it didn't rain? That was Elijah also. All right, so we got two clues already. They both have reminded me, at least, of Elijah. And here's a, here's a third clue. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood. That reminds me of anybody in the Old Testament. Moses, right? Right? When Israel was in captivity. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. That reminds you of anybody in the Old Testament? Moses. So there's four clues. The first two remind me, at least, about Elijah. The last two remind us about Moses. By the way, it's also interesting that the figurehead in the minds of Jewish people, the figurehead for the prophets is Elijah. For the Jewish people, the figurehead for the law is Moses. And for a Jewish person, their Old Testament scripture is all about the law and the prophets. So their minds would be drawn to Elijah and to Moses. So it is plausible, I think, that in Revelation chapter 11, as God is focusing on Jerusalem and he's focusing on this temple and he's focusing on Jewish worshipers, that he would also bring back to them two very special people that are key in their hearts and their minds Moses and Elijah. By the way, Moses and Elijah are also interesting guesses as to who this may be because you may remember that while Jesus was in his earthly ministry for three and a half years, one day he goes up on a mountain, he takes Peter, James, and John with him on that mountain, and he becomes fully glorified, or some say transfigured. They now call that place the Mount of Transfiguration. And when that happened, he was joined by two people out of the Old Testament. Who was he joined by? Moses and Elijah. 
So am I telling you definitively that these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah? No. Am I telling you it's my opinion that they're Moses and Elijah? I am telling you that's my opinion, and you can have your opinion too. So we've seen their authority. We've seen their activity. We've seen their identity. Now I want you to see their deaths. They're going to die. Verse 7 says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them, and kill them. Now listen, if you've never read the book of Revelation before, if really all you know about the book of Revelation is from the last several weeks, maybe hanging out at Grace Life, then this is the first time you've ever heard of the beast. This is the first time the beast has been brought up in the book of Revelation. It won't be the last time. He's going to be brought up 35 more times. So over the weeks to come, we're going to get really familiar with him. Just know right now that this is probably the Antichrist. You'll get to know that better as time goes on. Verse 8 says, Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So these two men, their Lord was crucified in this very same city. What, what city was their Lord crucified in? Jerusalem. Same city my Lord was crucified. We have the same Lord. And the Bible says that that place, the holy city Jerusalem, in these days, in these final three and a half years, remember we read earlier how the Gentiles are going to trample that place for three and a half years? And I said, we're going to come back to that in a minute. You're going to see just how bad it's trampled for three and a half years. That holy city called Jerusalem symbolically now is going to be called Sodom and Egypt. You say, why is that? Here's why. Sodom is regarded in the Bible as the most wicked evil, vile, ungodly city the world's ever known. Egypt, regarded as the most ungodly, vile, evil nation the world has ever known. What the Antichrist is going to take great delight in doing in those final three and a half years is taking God's holy city, Jerusalem, and flipping it and making it the most unholy place on the face of the planet. Doesn't that sound like something he's going to want to do? And it is what he's going to do. So these two men are dead now in the streets of Jerusalem. Watch verse 9. For three and a half days, and here's just how wicked the place is, y'all. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. In the Middle East, this is the, the greatest sign of dishonor. Just leave the dead out in the street. Don't even bury them. And those who dwell on the earth, watch this, those who dwell on the earth, the whole earth. Now, this happened in Jerusalem, but the whole earth's watching this, which is interesting. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry or have a party, celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Think about that. The whole world is going to celebrate that these two preachers have been slaughtered in the streets of Jerusalem. They're going to turn it into a festival, into a celebration. They're going to treat it as if it's Christmas morning. And they're going to give gifts to one another and celebrate this thing that has happened. Why are they so happy? Because these two preachers have been confronting their sin and their evil and pointing them to their only hope, pointing them to Jesus, the Son of God. Proclaiming that the judgment of God against sin is coming, but there's a way out, there's a way to be saved, but they don't want to hear that. Why? Because Jesus said the light has already come into the world and the darkness 
hates the light. They don't hate the Antichrist. They don't hate Satan. They don't hate the demons. But they hate these two preachers of the gospel. And they celebrate their deaths. But they don't stay dead. That brings me to the fifth thing I want you to see. I want you to notice the resurrection. Notice the resurrection. Verse 11 says, But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. Let me remind you, Satan does not get the final word. He never has, and he never will. Not in this age or the age to come. He will never get the last word. God always gets the last word. They stand up on their feet, and great fear fell on all who saw them. I bet it did. These people have been partying in the streets of Jerusalem. The whole world's been watching all this going on. They're partying along with this. And all of a sudden, after these bodies being dead, laid out in the street for 84 hours... They are now standing up on their feet. People all over the world are watching this party in, this, in the street of Jerusalem. Now, how are they doing that, by the way? They pull this thing called a phone out of their pocket, right? And there's the news, and there's TikTok videos, and there's Facebook, and there's Twitter, and there's all this kind of stuff, and everybody's watching this in real time, which is crazy to me to think about. In verse 12, it's really not so crazy because in about 20 seconds right now, we could pull out our phones and we could look at street cams in Jerusalem right now in live time. You can see what's going on over there. Verse 12 says, Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Same thing John heard in John chapter 4. Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And watch this, verse 13. And at that hour, can I ask you, do you remember I told you they came, these two witnesses, they get on the scene Halfway through the seven years, God said they're going to minister for three and a half years. So where on the timeline of the seven years of tribulation are we now? We are at the end. So when it says, and at that hour, you just need to know this is probably the last hour before the second coming. This is the last hour before Jesus enters into this world to take his rightful possession of it and reign in that city, that Sodom, Egypt of a city. He's going to flip it right side up, make that the capital of his reign upon the earth for a thousand years. This is, I believe, the last hour before he does that. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. We're talking about Jerusalem. It's all focusing on Jerusalem. All these events are happening in Jerusalem, but they're being observed by the whole world. 75 years ago, when my great-grandfather preached this text, my great-grandfather was an old Wesleyan Methodist preacher. And when he preached this text, this would seem strange. Because there was no Israel on the world stage 75 years ago. The idea that Jews would be on the Temple Mount worshiping God in a temple 75 years ago would seem strange. It would seem like science fiction to stand there and preach just 75 years ago. When, the, when these things happen, the whole world's going to be watching this happen. But here we are, y'all, in 2020. This ought to just make you a little excited today. Here we are in 2020, and we're reading this almost like we're watching the news right now, right? I mean, this is nothing. We totally get this. And then it says 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest, don't miss this, 
were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. That is the best part of Revelation chapter 11. We're not going to take months to try to figure out who these two witnesses are. That's not the point of Revelation 11. The point is that last sentence of Revelation chapter 11. The rest were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. That is a biblical way of saying these people got saved in the last hour before King Jesus comes to rule and to reign, the last hour before they were eternally damned, Jesus saved their soul. This is the end of the end. And at the very end, after all of this, after all of their godlessness, after all of their rebellion, after all of their violence, God is rich in mercy, rich in grace, and he still reaches out and he saves many in that very last hour. What a God we serve. What a God of love. What a God of mercy. What a God of grace. How many of his servants for thousands of years have been slaughtered in those very streets because sinners hate God and they hate his servants. And yet, even though all that has happened, God still comes down to that very street. And at the last moment, he still saves sinners to himself. Let me ask you this question. If God is willing to forgive sinners like that, who have fought him and resisted him so long. Why are you sitting here right now believing the lie that God will not forgive you? Why are you holding on to this lie from the enemy that what you have done is so egregious that God will not forgive you of that? Why have you come in this place with shame and guilt on your shoulders, prepared to walk right back out with the same said shame and guilt on your shoulders, thinking God's grace is not big enough to forgive me of this? I've offended him so much, he has no desire to restore me. Oh, that is not the God that we know. That is not the God we worship. That is not the God of Revelation chapter 11. Forgiveness is available. Salvation is available. Restoration is available to all of those who would turn from sin and self and call out on the Lord Jesus Christ today. The Bible says that if you will confess your sin, He is faithful. There's no question. He is faithful and He is just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, we bow our hearts before you today and we're just kind of speechless to think about that you would still love people like these in Revelation 11. And I needed to hear that today because there are moments in my life that I, I'm tuned in to the voice of the accuser who tells me my sin is too much. I pick up the shame and I pick up the guilt and I act like I'm a slave all over again to it. But the reality is I am not. We sang earlier, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. The reality is I'm free. God, I need to be reminded today that you are rich in grace and mercy, that your grace is greater than all of our sin. God, we all needed to hear that today and to be reminded of that today, that we would walk in the freedom that we have in Jesus. You've taken our sin. You've cast them as far as the east is from the west. God, I pray that if someone's here today and they've never given their life to Jesus, maybe they thought, well, I just, I've gone too far. The things that I've done, 
they're too bad, too, too dark, too terrible. And today I pray that God, through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, you're bringing people to Jesus. God, that saints in this room who battle, God, with shame and guilt, God, that you would remind us today who we are in Jesus. Holy Spirit, proclaim that freedom over our hearts and in our minds today. And God, let us not fall prey today to some legalistic sort of thinking that says, well, for that to happen, you've got to take these steps and you've got to do all these things. No, no. The gospel says you just come as you are. You bring your sin and your shame and your guilt and your baggage and your scars and all that, and you just come as you are, and God will transform it all. He'll take it all. Prodigals come home smelling bad, but they're welcomed by the open arms of a father who loves them. That's our story, that's our song. And we will praise our Savior all the day long. In his good name we pray. Let's stand and let's worship the Lord. Let's trust him to forgive us. Let's trust him to restore us today.